Hello and welcome to EG's Office Politics, our first podcast of the year, which is very exciting. Apart from, of course, our interview with Michael Heseltine, which has gone out as a separate podcast Mm. and before this one, but this is the first one when we're actually together. Yes, when the dynamic duo are back again. Exactly, exactly, when the... The greatest coalition since <laughs> since uh, yes okay I think well yes I just just leave the metaphor there and gently walk away. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we we've got the interview with with Michael Heseltine, which was all about his experience mm. uh, with regeneration, going back to to Liverpool and before that. Um, but also about what's happening at the moment. No, I mean, Michael, uh, in terms of urban regeneration and so on and so forth, really, you know, cut a new direction, I think. The people of Liverpool, you know, most Conservatives who go up to Liverpool tend to have to sort of wear a tin hat, but um, uh, actually they, they they liked him, and they liked him because he came there, he settled and stayed there, he worked from there, he listened, he engaged, he was out on the streets. And people will forgive, you know, people of almost any political persuasion if they feel they're actually grounded in the reality of what their lives are like. Um, and I was quite involved professionally as a surveyor in the days of the, the very early days of London Docklands Development mm. Corporation. Um, so that work that he was doing and so on, you know, very much resonates. And, and I think his remarks, you know, really fresh, considering, you know, he's a, even a few years older than me, which is ex- extraordinary. Um, uh, you know, very much on the ball, as you would expect. Mm. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it, that he's, he's 90 this year mm. in only a couple of weeks. And that doesn't really come across at all. The grasp is still there, the grit, and also just how on top of current events he is. He's always had a very good network. Something Ken Clark always had, mm. who, something I did work directly with, and um, they've always kept their own network. They've always uh, been out and engaged. They're not just the Westminster bubble. So, yes, they follow what's going on, and they're, in, they're thinking about it and so on, and it's part of their life. But they have that sort of slightly broader network, which means they keep keep pretty fresh, actually. So, no, mm-hmm. good for him. Some of the things that he was saying, he um, mentioned Liverpool, but that idea of going there and actually asking questions and sitting yep. there, you know, spending the time, taking the time to have the conversations yeah. with people. I mean, it seems fairly obvious now, although we're not doing it. It, mm. it was fairly sort of revolutionary at the time, wasn't it? I mean, he, he talked about, you know, project managing it with his uh, 30-page loose-leaf notebook and um, really getting into the the depth of what what people wanted, what was needed on the ground. Well, don't forget he'd helped build a business, so he kind of knew how you you had to put all the pieces together and you had to listen to uh, things at street level and not just think strategically. But, um, you know, I think... I mean, I learnt you know, my very first work in uh, for Knight Frank and Rutley in the days of the 1980s that there is no substitute for walking around mm. the, the the you know the community or the development that you're looking at. That was one of the, his his great strengths, and also a recognition that you have a free market, but you also have a government to create the framework within that market so it can operate effectively. Yeah, that that idea of. of- creating the environment to allow things to flourish. Yeah, and I think it's the other thing, uh, and we may come on to to, to, to Michael Goh's remarks, but, um, mm. uh, you know, one of the things you've got to remember is that, that government in the early 80s was pretty pragmatic around how do you regenerate an area. And the idea that uh, which Professor Peter Hall created of enterprise zones mm. um, was then introduced into the mix, uh, a blend of powers and tax uh, reliefs, uh, and the idea that if you define an area that needs to be uh, regenerated, that government then has a role to both define it, to, to provide the incentives and the powers to create that framework 
and to let those flowers bloom. And I think that 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 is something that was very much both policy and practice. And that's that that's why it worked. I thought it was quite interesting what he was saying about with enterprise zones um, when he was talking about the LDDC, the sort of bald approach of, well, if you strip it all away and allow anything to happen, then mm. hopefully mm. what will happen will be good and it will be good for growth. And that sort of that sounded a little bit like the um, the trust suggestions that we were getting fairly recently. But then his point and uh, Reg Ward's point at the time that if they had just stuck with an enterprise zone formula and left it at that it wouldn't have worked. Mm. But what they needed was something that was far more coordinated and far more strategic and yes. pulled in those things. And it seemed quite interesting that, that that reflected some of the criticisms that he had of the current setup. Yeah. That it's it's a bit too piecemeal. It's yeah. a bit too... It's, I mean, again, echoing criticisms that we've heard from all sorts of people, both from the Labour opposition um, and from people like uh, Andy Street, you know, mm. th these same criticisms that it's too top-down, it's too... Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it helps to have visionary leaders like Reg Ward in, in uh, you know, I worked with Reg uh, at the very early days of uh, the LDDC and he was a real visionary and, um, you know, this was the time, remember, when the Square Mile, the City Corporation father's uh, view was that why on earth would you want to go to a postal code beginning with E? Uh, you will not want, no one will want to do business with anybody down, you know, in the docks. Why on earth would you want? So there was a real antipathy towards the nature that you might put anything other than factories or warehouses mm. there. And also, you'd had 1960s and 70s planning policy, which had uh, put preservation controls over the walls around the docks, never mind anything else. So getting anything to actually change was incredibly difficult. So this was really a revolutionary idea of saying, right, let's define the area that needs help. Let's give it the locality some powers. Now, in this case, the development corporation was not led by the locally elected authority, and there's a good debate to be had around that. But nevertheless, the powers were localised to the development corporation. They had the tax powers, they had the planning control, they had compulsory purchase powers. Um, and and I think that's that combination is strong. I, I, I agree with Michael Heseltine on this, that actually I want to see the mayoral development corporations today. I would like to see them have the same powers the old development corporations had planning compulsory purchase yeah. uh, tax uh, relief because it's the combination of those three things that brings the private sector to the table yeah and that, that's the that's the power of it yeah, as well as absolutely as, as michael Hestine was saying um, that you know you've got to have that ability to assemble the land you've got to have that ability to actually start these absolutely these right. rolling with that as he said i think something like um without planning permission there's nothing no, absolutely. And I mean, this is why I was a bit frustrated. So when I was in government, we were at the earlier stages of HS2, and some of the stations hadn't been allocated, and I've failed in doing it, but I lobbied hard other colleagues to say, look, why on earth are we paying for the stations? Because the government is drawing a line on a map and saying, this is where the railway station, the railway line will be, and here's going to be a station. By doing that, we create a significant local land value. Mm. So we should, instead of procuring and building the station ourselves, turn to those people who own that area and say, we will uh, provide you with a specification for the station, which we will have from you for 150 years or whatever term they want. And here is, here is your acorn or whatever <laughs> the Grosvenor State used to do with the American Embassy. Um, and and that is that is a peppercorn. That was the word I was That's looking for. 
And um, uh, you better check what that means for anybody under about 50. Um, but, uh, but that notion, to me, made sense because the government is creating value, therefore it can rightly turn around and get the private sector to, uh, to, to deliver a, a raft of services, not only because without that railway line, the value of that land would be very much lower. Mm. With it, it's much higher, therefore there's a logic to it. So that land capture can be done, should be done. And, and at that regional level as well. It seems that the, yeah. the conversation at the moment seems to be going far more towards that idea of, of devolution financially as well, that instead of just talking about it and talking about regional assemblies, talking about you know, having more elected officials, it's it's that real power, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and I think that's right. And I think, um, so obviously there was a lot of controversy around the money being given out recently for regional growth and for the um, levelling up fund. Um, and obviously one has to sort of separate out the fact that people who didn't get the money were naturally unhappy and the people who did were, were naturally happy. So just sort of putting that slightly to one side. I personally think I would like us to move to a situation where we devolve those funds that relate to the local economy and transport, planning, skills and so on. But the quid pro quo has to be that we raise the calibre in terms of skills, experience and leadership of those people at that local level dealing with it. Because many of the listeners to this who have dealt with regional um, leadership have often said to me, you know, the problem is that um, there are some very good local authorities. Howard Bernstein, Manchester, knew exactly how to deal with the private sector and get what the community needed, but also be proficient and uh, effective enough to deliver what the private sector needed. Not every local authority has that leadership. So I think, yes, devolve the funds, but we need a parallel program of coaching, mentoring mm. and training so that we get the highest calibre of local officials. But isn't that a problem? That's a problem of resource, isn't it? I mean, yes. Mm, it's culture as well, I think. Doesn't I think, that come from resource? I mean, we've got local government has been under-resourced oh, yes. for decade after decade now. We've got this, this system that's run on a shoestring, in fact, half a shoestring, mm. and we're expecting them to be able to have the resource and the, the talent to to handle these really quite complex projects. You're right to say more resources needed, and most of our local planning departments are woefully underfunded in that context. But it's not just that, it's more than that. I would like to recruit, and he's an old friend of mine, so I'm slightly biased <laughs> on this, but I'd like to recruit, you know, 100 more Andy Streets. Now, people like that are only going to come into I the... I think that's an acceptable form of, of nepotism. Okay, and, fine. And jobs for friends, if, if it's yes, Andy it's a I slightly. Think. I have to be honest, it's a slightly <laughs> scary concept, but uh, as his friends will, will no doubt say. But um, uh, what I mean by that is that I would like to feel that we can attract a higher caliber of people into the mayoral roles. I don't care what colour rosette they wear. Mm. I want to see good people. They won't come forward unless, A, the roles are uh, substantial, and B, that they feel that um, they get the support and encouragement they need. And, you know, I remember talking to him and to Andy Burnham, um, and uh, I said to them when they were first elected, so what kind of, you know, uh, support or whatever did you get? Were, were there anybody trying to say, right, you've now become the mayor, it's an entirely new job, you've never done it before, here, here are some coaching and mentoring and so on. They said, well, what actually happened was that Mike Bloomberg rang and said, um, look, I run a, a school of government in, in the States. Would you like to come over? And we have a network of city, city mayors here as well. And you think, what, this is what we need to do here. Yeah. This coaching, mentoring, support network, so that you start getting a, ca a, a cadre of people who know how to run things. Yeah. 
um, at local level. That, that, that's the ambition. So you're right to say that the resources are needed at a basic level, but in leadership terms, it's about attracting the calibre of people. Well, do you think that we're going to be able to do that on the settlements that we've got in place, the, the devolved settlements, the financial agreements, the powers? I think the sort of powers that uh, Messrs Burnham and Street, to a degree, Houchen have, and, and obviously the Mayor of London, I think those are the scale of packages that you need. There's more to come, I think, and the deal that they're negotiating at the moment, running up to the budget, I think will get, take them that much further. But not everywhere has that. Yeah. Um, now, I think it's legitimate to say, right, we want to move more places to that area, but we also want to have one eye on the calibre of local experience, skills and leadership and therefore that sh there should be that supportive thing, the, the sort of Bloomberg model. Mm. And that's something that can be done, and it isn't hugely expensive. You know, if you're doling out hundreds of millions in large project funds, you don't need to spend hundreds of millions on a recruitment, training, and coaching program for, the, for the, make sure the people who receive that money know what, how to deal with it. Kind of makes you, you know, if you, if you dealt with it at the basic accounting level, you'd say, well, I... I would like to make sure I've got a qualified accountant dealing with my 100 million. Um, uh, and, and I think similarly here, you want someone who understands, has experience and a network of how to actually deal with a complex urban regeneration project. I think we're going to go um, in depth on devolution at a later date, aren't we? We've got that. We've got that. Yes, uh, Devo swing trunks ready to, to dive <laughs> in, go go the whole way down. So I think we're going to, yeah, we're, we're definitely going to come back to that one. There were some other things. I mean, going back to what uh, Lord Heseltine was saying, he talked rather warmly about his time coming back uh, with the coalition government. Mm, with, um, yes, I had several meetings with him. Well, yeah, and, and it seemed that, that that was a bit of a renaissance. And then 2017, everything gets stripped away. He's back in the wilderness mm. and... The way that he talks about that is, is not just that it was a personal blow to be um, dismissed, but that actually it was it was part of a general theme that there was this sort of decline. He talked about the uh, the single pot being stripped away. Talked about the um, the coordination mm -hmm. and central government being stripped away. The the push towards true English devolution being kind of turned into to nothing but talk. Um, is that? Was that your memory of it as well? Did you feel that that, that was what happened? I think that I think I would I would generally agree with that. I, mm. I think um, equally, you know, the the melodrama of Brexit from mm. 2016 onwards, um, and you know, Michael has very clear principal views on that, uh, and therefore uh, I suspect that will have made it more difficult for the then leadership. Um, but yeah, I think my I mean, I was a member of the coalition government, so um, I have a degree of bias in that context. But I think. The feeling there was very much collaborative, how can we sort this out? Mm -hmm. um, because at the heart of it was two political parties willing to write up a, you know, a, a job sheet to get on with um, and, and hold ourselves to that. So the nature of the government was collaborative and I think therefore a willingness to look back and say, you know, actually a lot of the stuff that Michael was doing was great. Um, uh, so and I'm, 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 you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan. And now it seems that, that after that period of, of being at odds mm. with... I mean, it's still his own party. I, th I think, he's, mm -hmm. as he said, he still pays mm. his dues, even if he doesn't um, <laughs> get the whip. Um, but there seems to be a sort of a, a growing dislocation. But there seems to be a sort of a sense that that's changing. I mean, I, I don't know if that's something that you've picked up on, but I noticed with the, the leadership election that all of the candidates name-checked Lord Heseltine at least once. 
Right. He he, he was. I, I think. Um, and this is this is an unofficial tally. I'll probably be told that I'm completely wrong. But um, it seemed that <laughs> your was, impression was um, was that he was he was the one who was who was sort of mentioned and referenced um, almost as much as Margaret Thatcher, which seemed like a, a complete shift from the animosity between. Uh, between him and, and, and Johnson, the yes, uh, and also Theresa May. Well, I think the whole, you know, that whole period from the referendum up, running up to the referendum on Brexit, and and the period all the way through to twenty twenty, frankly, um, was very bitter, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, was a absolutely sharp dividing line within the relationships b- b- between politicians, particularly in the Tory Party, not just in the Tory Party. I mean, it was fairly dicey in parts of the Labour Party as well but you know I think it was a difficult period and obviously Michael was was absolutely adamant about where he stood on Brexit and wasn't prepared to be quiet and therefore was inevitably a thorn in the side of the current leadership at that time and you know that just made things more difficult in that sense and it just makes it more difficult for then the Prime Minister of the day whether it's Theresa or indeed whether it was Boris to then say actually he's got some real talents let's get him in and do such Mm. and such Uh, it just makes it difficult Um, so yeah I think you know one of my frustrations around Brexit was it poisoned the well which meant that so many other things that needed to be done Mm. social care reform being the obvious one just never happened because you couldn't and this wasn't just the Brexiteers, this was also then the hardliners on the other end in Parliament, certainly. You know, I mean, there were numerous debates in 17, 18 and 19 that I was engaged in, which were nothing to do with Brexit, but would be dragged across to the subject because there was a nutter on one side or the other who could not discuss anything else except through that prism. And you know, I just found that intensely frustrating. I mean, I know people said it was, it was bad from the public's point of view. Let me tell you now, as a parliamentarian <laughs> with a degree of rationality, being inside Westminster was even worse. Um, one of the things that, that Heseltine said was that um, he felt that that whole episode kind of sucked the air out of... I mean, you, you said it sucked the air out of so many issues, but specifically regeneration, that it was hard to get the, the necessary drive and focus from the top and that I, I found that quite interesting because you know 2019 there was obviously there there'd, there'd been a whole get Brexit done slogan but the other one was of course leveling up yeah and it seemed his views on level, on leveling up especially Boris Johnson's version of it are <laughs> scathing <laughs> yes well it's fair to say that um, despite their similarity in hair colour the um, <laughs> the pair of them. You know, I wouldn't want to be stuck in a lift. I think it might not be an entirely happy uh, hour or two. Um, yeah, there's a, there, there is a degree of mutual loathing there, mm. and that's just how these things go. It doesn't happen very often, but that's that's uh, not as often as people like to think. Um, is, that, is that just because Boris was the next person in his seat in Henley? I mean, do you have the same for, for <laughs> your successor? No, 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 no. It, it's more ideological, more whatever, you know. Um, and uh, my successor is uh, eminently capable, and I... I, you know, whatever. Um, so, no, I think I hadn't really looked at it in that context. I, I would say it sucked the air out of almost every every yeah. change because uh, two reasons. One, it was very difficult to do anything that wasn't seen through that prism because you couldn't get any legislation through because it was dominating all of that. And two, I think it's true that certainly with Boris's number 10, um, it was dysfunctional and therefore getting, getting number 10 to focus on a complex 
broad issue and drive that through the different departments that need to be involved was incredibly difficult. Um, I mean, Theresa ran a much tighter ship, and and you know, Rishi is 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 very good on this. But um, so I think leveling up, and it may well be that. Um, Michael feels that leveling up is a sort of feeble recognition that actually we need to get back to where he he mm. was. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, what is leveling up? It's about making sure that wherever you live and whoever you are, you have a fair opportunity to progress and that your community can thrive. And, um, you know, leveling up is the label. Yeah. Um, but... And that means it's got to be holistic. It's got to be about schooling. It's got to be about transport. It's got to be about local city centres quality of housing etc and that that was that did seem to be very much the um charge that he leveled at it that it wasn't it was about piecemeal packages it was about you know top-down decisions on who should get the money yeah and that kind of brings us to fairly recent decisions doesn't it? i mean we've had mm. the, the latest slug the second round of, of leveling up funding the 2.1 billion pounds yep, that's um, right. long awaited i mean it's actually it, yes. it's only since Octo- was it october that it was originally yes. meant to be dished out but yeah I, I try hey, to do you know prime ministers can last six weeks so <laughs> it's a lifetime um so uh yeah i mean i think i was looking at I, how many times mps had stood up in the chamber and asked somebody from the department going, yes. when are we going to see the money yeah. when are you going to let us know when we're going to see the money yes and it's i mean every opportunity that they had but i, I i'm a skeptic about the sort of the dolloping out of money at this from the center as being mm. the best way forward there's a bit of a track back on that as well because the um, i think it's is it the city's fund the city is something which Heseltine set up years and years and years ago, kind of established that. Oh, right, yes. The sort of bid for your money and some yes. of you will lose. Yes, he did. No, that, that's true. Yes, he did. Yes. I mean, it's the classic thing. You've only got so much money, Minister. Well, how would you like to use it? Well, I know. We'll have competition. Mm. And then the problem is becomes the cost of the competition because... And it's all very well, but the, the, the danger is there's a lot of wasted cost because if 30 authorities bid for money that's going to go to three of them, then that's 27 authorities who spent quite a lot of money uh, in that process that might have been is not necessarily the best way to spend that money. Mm. I don't deny that the competitive element means that people have to sharpen their pencils and have to really think in, in, innovatively. Yeah, the the Labour comment of the, the Hunger Games. <clears throat> yeah, it's interesting. Well, how the hell they're, 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 they this could be their problem very soon if they're not careful and uh, I, I'd keep quiet if I were <laughs> I just, you know... It'll be on their table soon, and uh, yeah, exactly. If they're not yeah. very how, how careful, how are you going to do it differently? Yeah, the danger is that the, what they have to do, like you know, exams these days, is understand the boxes that need to be ticked, and then provide the answer on, in a sort of retrofitted way. Mm. It's a bit like we used to have, you know, um, there were phases. The Labour government started it under Blair, and I think we we continued it a bit, which was that in education it would be um, an initiative to have um, design and, and, and technology as being at the heart of schooling, and there would be a pot of money for that. So every school, regardless of whether they did design or technology, because there was no other money that they, you yeah. know, they would bid for it, and they would say, we will rename ours the digital digital economy, you know, the, 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 the Mark Prisk Memorial uh, <laughs> Design and Technology School, um, and, and we'll, we'll do, do this and so on and so forth, in order to get the money. In other words, what happens is that um, everything gets skewed hmm. because of a particular passing uh, policy. And actually what you want is sustained investment at the local level. That is why, I totally agree with Michael about this, is the more money we can give to a locality which is accountable to that com- locality and which is spent in the round over a sustained period, the better. 
Well, this is the thing, isn't it? Because the, the allocation of these funds is being made by... I mean, the accusation is it's being made by ministers and officials who have never been to the places they're allocating money to. Now, I, I think that's possibly a bit unfair. I'm sure they've been to some. Yes. But they can't have been to all. And those decisions can't have been made based on spending 18 months with a 30-page loose-leaf notebook and really sucking up the detail. I mean, no. that, that is a huge problem, isn't it? Yeah, and we had it with the Regional Growth Fund. Now, what this was, I think I may have mentioned this one before because it always bugs me, <laughs> but um, Vince Cable came into my office one morning and said, have you seen this? And Vince was not the most, you know, naturally communicative person the first thing in the morning. Um, and what had happened was that the Quad, if you remember this, so this was the two Conservative and the two Liberal mm. leaders of the Coalition at the time, had obviously had a conversation in which I'm assuming the Chancellor and the Prime Minister needed some sort of agreement. So Clegg had presumably, I said, well, I would like to establish a regional growth fund which my office will run. Now, that's all fine and dandy, but they took the, the billion out of my pocket or out of the department's money, which we were going to establish the local enterprise partnerships with. So we were left with diddly squad, mm. and the money was sent off to the scheme, which hadn't been designed or formulated. So then we had six months in which the Deputy Prime Minister's office was trying to work out what the criteria should be, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then when it got to the tricky stage of having to pick, it suddenly got dropped in my lap um, <laughs> into, and to Vince's lap um, to, to actually have to deal with, you know. And, of course, it ends up coming round to um, people sitting around a table saying, well, we've got 47 applications here. They all tick these various boxes, mm. and we've done the criteria analysis and so on and so forth, you know, but can we sign them off? And then there would be a discussion about, well, hang on a moment, there's 47 that are in the northwest, but only 32 are in the northeast. So we've got to be careful. So, well, maybe, well, 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 well you know, and then you start getting this tinkering, and mm. you just think, I'm sorry, guys, this is not the way to, and I, you know, I had a fairly um, free and frank exchange of views uh, with them on this. Um, and of course, it was you know, quickly dropped in my lap because that way, um, if anyone's scalp had to be uh, you removed from the rest of their body, it would be mine and not the deputy prime minister's. So, these, uh, so as, as you can tell, there's a degree of bitterness and, and, and bias here. But um, I just kind of feel these schemes are—they're just not the way to do it. I mean, isn't isn't the fundamental problem as well that you've, as you say, you've got these applications, these bids going in. Um, and they're mostly for, for worthy schemes. There are yeah, a couple of powers that you look at and think, what? Yes. Um, but by and large, these are things that need to be done. They need funding. This is the only real funding that's available to them. Mm. They probably missed out on the first round. Mm. There's only one more round left, and mm. then where does the money come from? But the, the latest round was for every one bid that was accepted, there were four that were dismissed. I mean, mm. that, was, that was the latest count. And Presumably, quite a lot of those bids actually did tick the boxes. Probably. And, and even if they didn't tick the boxes, they... They, they had, had a, a value they of had, some sort. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems... I don't, I don't think anyone would really believe that, that the ones that actually met the brief and were worthy and should have had the money somehow magically totaled 2.1 billion, which was the 
chunk of money that they previously said they would allocate. I mean, that's... Yes, that's there's so. a little bit of shuffling that goes when they get up to the sort of late 1.8s to make sure <laughs> they get to the 2.1s, I'm sure. Um, but I think, you're, I think you're right as well. I mean, to be fair, what tends to happen is there is quite a... The civil service do tend to go for a quite clear set of criteria. So, mm. the, you know, the number of jobs created, the number of uh, temporary part, part-time, so they'll break all that down. Uh, you know, the uh, gross uh, added value that's actually mm. made in the constituency, the number of small business that will be affected. There's a whole raft of criteria, but you know what? You're, it's very difficult to objectively balance each of those against mm. uh, others. And some will be just ahead. They'll they'll score you know 8.9 uh, out of 10, and another one will score 8.8. Um, so the 8.9 gets it, you know. So, uh, but who and who are we to? It, it's a difficult thing to judge, and it's why I prefer the model in which the people spending the money are local and directly accountable. Yeah. Because if it is a complete howler, and there were some, I mean, I, I can't remember the localities. So I'm not deli- being deliberately coy, but there was a there was a miniature railway improvement program put into the regional growth fund as an application. It didn't get passed. I'm pleased to say, but you just thought, mm, did they just fudge the word miniature? Like well, yeah, it was, was just yes, it was just. You, you know, just occasionally you think, what on earth is this, and what is the value of this, and how does this work? Um, so, I, I, as I say, I, I think moving away from a central panel making arbitrary decisions mm. is a, generally a wise thing. I mean, on big infrastructure projects, there is an argument that where there are just two or three, and we're talking about mega billions, then you do need a panel of experts to be able to look at that. But and, I would, and that's sort of that's that's. Those are things that have national yeah. impact and so require a national solution. Absolutely right. Um, with um, with that latest allocation, how do you? What's your take on the accusation that most of the money, or too much of the money, certainly, went to the relatively wealthy areas of London and the South East and leafy green? remarkably conservative voting areas of the Northern Midlands, and not much of it went to parts that people decided were more worthy of levelling up. Yeah, I tried to work my way through the list and get a sense of where they were. And of course, one of the confusions here is that someone said, oh, well, these went to mostly seats with Conservatives in. Well, there are a lot more Conservative (laughs) members of Parliament, so it's kind of a... And also, one of the... reasons the government is in office is because it now has MPs that it never previously had mm. that are in areas that you know were traditionally Labour. So there's a, that, that kind of thing. Um, I think the other thing I would just say, I, I, I'm always slightly wary. I, I've never liked the, the big regions. You know the nine regions mm. we have, the sort of east of England, etc, etc. They're a nonsense. Yeah. They're useful because they're nine, broadly speaking, similar in terms of population. But the notion that the good tur- turkey farmers of Norfolk has something economically directly in common with the Thames Valley, mm. uh, the sort of Watford, Hemel Hempstead area, is bonkers. But they're lumped in together. And so when they do this regional analysis, they say, well, this money went to East of England and this one. Yeah, and in East of England, you have Luton, which has some significant problems. In the Northwest, you have Chester, which is a very yeah. prosperous and nice area. You've got to drill down a bit, is, would be my view, as to when you're looking at these and have a look at it. I used to get into a rather silly conversation, and it's all about nuts. And the reason is that that is the, the, the men- nomenclature for the way in which 
um, regional data is collected. And there's a sort of big picture stuff, which is sort of northern Italy or, you know, Sicily mm-hmm. or whatever. And then there's the stuff that's actually citywide. And then there's the level where they drill down and look at it more locally. And I always argue that I want to drill down because in every area, take uh, East Hearts, which I used to represent, um, very often the poor pockets of the communities that are there are far more cut off have a far level lower level of expenditure on deprivation because the area is deprived, not regarded as being deprived. Therefore, there are no social funds. There is no bus. Uh, the council housing is far more remote and so on. And so I, I know what people are saying. I would like to drill down a bit further. And I kind of, I'm, it's why I was very happy to get rid of the nine regional development agencies mm. because they were just bonkers, really. They, they, you know, the Southwest. Now, I say this as a Cornishman, but. Yes, I was the, wondering if this was going to come back to yes. your, your slight Cornish nationalism. Indeed. But the notion that Gloucester, which is a lovely yeah. part of the world, it has anything to do with what's going on in Camden Red Ruth and West in West Cornwall is for the birds. I mean, Mm. Gloucester, as far as most people in Cornwall are concerned, is nearer to Birmingham. Um, And so that regional thing that we have, those nine regions, make no sense at all to me. Do you think the the, the way of... We're getting back into devolution again, aren't we? Yes, we we are. I'm not going to ask this question, then. We'll ask this (laughs) when we talk about devolution properly. Where shall I go instead? I mean, isn't, isn't the fundamental problem that... 2.1 2.1 billion sounds like an awful lot of money. Mm-hmm. 4.3 billion, the total size of mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. area, sounds like an even bigger chunk of money. The, the total 9, 10 billion, however much it is, when you combine all the other funds, that also sounds like an awful lot of money. But when you put it next to the national budget, yep. and you put it next to the size of the bids that are coming in, and you put it next to just the level of need, and when you put it next to the chronic under-resourcing of these areas... It's nothing, is it? I mean, it's... It's worth having. Sure. It's worth doing, but you're right to say that, um, and again, this comes back to the nature of the funding, doling out pots of money here and there, which all politicians have a habit of doing because it's a nice substitute for... Well, it looks like you're doing something, and being seen to do something is very important. And I say that both as an ex-politician, but also it's a media thing. They want the mm. new thing. They want the new story. They're not interested in whether you delivered that project you talked about six months ago. They couldn't care less. They want to know what the new thing is. And they don't want to know that the new thing is a strategic plan where you're going to look no, at no, no, no. It's got to have a, It's got to have a nice large number against it. It's Ideally, it's got to have, in inverted commas, ordinary people being able to do as a nice vox pop things about, oh, well, our area, you know, will be very useful. Preferably a three-word slogan. That would be good. Um, And so what I'm slowly sort of lurching towards is to say um, what is actually needed is sustained investment that isn't uh, uh, driven by the electoral cycle. Now, that doesn't mean there shouldn't be democratic control, but it means that you make as much of those resources for key things like skills, training, planning, economic development, you put them at the local level, you make them accountable at the local level. Um, what I do like, which Michael's doing, is he's creating what the wonderfully named off-log. Yes. Now, this is not for measuring the performance of logs. This is me- measuring the performance of um, local government. And this is about trying to uh, just bring into the highlight um, the huge variation in performance between local localities. 
um, how different people spend their money and how effective they are in delivering what they are asked to do and indeed what they are aiming to do. So I think that is a good thing to do because I think if you put that information in place, people can see it. It actually removes the need for ministers to be tinkering and meddling all the uh, all the time what, because the public can then see for themselves that actually... Council X, you know, runs these ha- this this housing program or this social mm-hmm. care program for this amount of money, and they deliver these outcomes. But next door, they only deliver half the outcomes on the same money. What's the problem? And that that I think is a really good because that will help us move away from the answer that whatever the problem is, the answer is more money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which is a problem with the NHS, I think, and it has been for many years. Uh, yes, you need investment. Yes, you need funding, but you need to think how it's delivered who's delivering it, what the skills are, etc. And that, that level of detail, that chipping in, yeah. is, is vital to know where it should go, where yeah, it shouldn't so, go. So I think offlog is, 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 is a good idea that uh, Michael Gove in his, his speech recently, which in some ways mirrors you know, Michael Heseltine's. Well, model. yes, let's talk about that, because I thought that was fascinating, that you've got, um, shortly after we have a natter with, with Michael Heseltine, mm-hmm. um, where he says that the fundamental problems are that this isn't joined up properly, there's no uh, real strategic thinking and communication between the government departments, where's the top slicing that Mm. existed in the coalition, all of these things. And then suddenly you get a speech from Michael Gove where it seems that the new flavour of levelling up is all about that. Mm. Um, And in fact, he he mentioned Michael Heseltine. There was a bit of a name check there, Mm -hmm. um, talking about the LDDC. I mean, I, I asked Michael Heseltine if he had spoken to Michael Gove, if he'd been called in, because I remember Grant Shapps saying that as soon as he became business secretary, he, he wanted to bring in as many people who'd done the job before to ask them how mm, to do yes, the job. which is a good thing. Yeah. Um, and Michael Heseltine was obviously one of them. Um, and uh, Michael Heseltine was rather coy in his reply. He said that, yes, yes, he had spoken to him. Yes. Right, Okay. Oh well, that's yes. I don't know. Sometimes coy means that uh, means nothing, and sometimes coy means um, uh, there's an awful lot more that you should be scraping away at. Exactly. But anyway, we'll yeah. we'll no. I mean, I think I thought what Michael Gove uh, said um, was powerful. It was thoughtful. It was coherent. All of those things you would expect from him. Um, I was interested that he feels. And I think he genuinely does feel there is a moral mission mm, to that ensure. Was an interesting phrase, wasn't it? Yeah, to ensure that actually people have a fair, uh, you know, crack of the whip uh, wherever they are. He he does feel very strongly on the quality of social homes. Yeah. Um, I think you know during this last year or so there have been some terrible incidents, and that has brought home to him. Uh, the need for action and I think he passionately does really want to do something there which is great and it's it's important to have a Secretary of State to, to lead on that and I say that as a former housing minister you know I know the industry gets terribly worked up about you know the constant change in housing ministers and you know uh, uh, who am I to disagree but um, actually Secretaries of State sometimes have not uh, they've sometimes delegated the housing role mm. and not necessarily taken a front and line view on it and Michael Gove is and I think that bodes well and you know he's fairly unsackable you know just thinking about it so the chances are therefore he's likely to be there for the next year 18 months or so well, and even if he was he'd probably come back well indeed I think it's quite interesting actually the Lazarus got... quality <laughs> of, of um, politicians well he's so he's uh a Secretary of State covering that brief who's returned. Mm-hmm. Um, Greg Clark mm. is another one who returned. And yes. Michael Heseltine. Yes, returned. I know. So, yeah, we've got... 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not bitter and twisted. They didn't ask me. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, all, all of the people you mentioned, uh, you know, are good people, thoughtful, intelligent, ask the right questions, engaged, understand the point about delivery, practical, yep, you know, my kind of people. So going back to Gove's speech, is it a departure? Are we seeing a slightly different interpretation of the mission, the brief? I think it's taking, so the notion of investment zones and so on, which Simon Clark and which Liz Truss talked about, were fine except they lacked the powers and also they, they, there, was a, there was a lack of thought about what are they for? A lacuna, as Michael Hesseltine said, which I think is a wonderful and underused word. Marvellous. Um, there, was, there, was, there was one of those as well. Um, <laughs> no, what, what, what I was going to say was, um, if you're trying to have investment zones or enterprise zones or whatever, are they about regenerating uh, an area that's struggling or are they about enabling an area that's doing well to, you know, really go mm. and buzz? And there seemed to be a confusion. Or, or the third route, which seems to be rewarding somewhere that's that's done well for having done well. Yes. That, that, that seemed to be a suggestion under, under this yes. trust that they would be So happy. what I liked about where Michael uh, Gove was going was that he did refer back to development corporations. I hope that the government as a whole will see through the logic of that and make sure the new mayoral development corporations have the powers and resource and mm. uh, taxation relief opportunities that the old ones did because that combination will then make the difference. Um, but I think he gets it and I think that's encouraging. Um, and I think, you know, and I, I know from talk, knowing working with the house, social housing sector, he's very passionate about making sure that, that, that the problems with the existing housing stock are dealt with and they need to be dealt with. That seems to be a, a common point between the two Michaels, doesn't it? I've just realised that this is this podcast is, is a tale of two Michaels. Tale of two Michaels, there you go. Um. And my first name is actually Michael. Um, there you are. There, who, who knew? This, is, this is a revelation. <laughs> Michael Mark Bruce. Yes, no, well, it was. Um, uh, it really doesn't help when you're uh, trying to deal with officialdom because I'm known as Mark. I was always known as Mark. My father was Michael. So. Um, uh, and the, his mother's Should we just call you Junior? Name. Just call me Junior. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Junior. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, I can't reach to hit you, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll do that after the, uh, after the uh, podcast, listeners. He will as well. He, will. he beats me. <laughs> um, but that, that thing, we've got, we've got these, these, the two Michaels, and, mm. I mean, in some ways they couldn't be further apart, could they? We've got a, a, a Brexiter, and we've got somebody who is so ardently anti-Brexit mm -hmm. that, that, I mean... A discussion about that would probably lead to argument, if not bloodshed, at certain times. It will be intense, yes. But yeah. there, are, there are similarities, I think. There is a, a strong intellect. There is a recognition that delivery actually matters. Mm. Um, so there's a rigour uh, about their thinking process and their work process. Um, and they're recognised in Whitehall as people that get stuff done. Yeah, yeah. And that's... That's a pretty good reputation to have. And there's a passion as well, isn't there? Yeah, there is. I think that's true. No, I think that's right. And I think um, the fact that Michael Gove, uh, you know, as you said, uh, used the word moral mission, mm. words moral mission, um, I think underpins that, yeah. But it seems as, as well a, a specifically a passion for this regenerative crusade, this sort of, you know... Michael Heseltine, for example, he, he was offered another role. It was thought that he didn't want to go back to environment in 1990 um uh but he said no no i i, I will i will go back to yeah to that 
that position. Um, Michael Gove returning again mm-hmm. to, to this, and it seems almost with a, with a new zeal. It seems that there's there's more fire in his belly to yes. To, to do well, that. and I think sometimes if if you've had a reprieve and you're back in and and you've been around the block before, you kind of know the stuff. You there will always be when you've left suddenly and abruptly the sense there was unfinished business. Mm. And so I suspect for both of them, and I don't know, I haven't asked them that question, but um, there will be a sense that actually there's 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 work to complete. Do you think, is, is it a shame that we didn't get uh, more of Greg Clark, Mark II? Yeah, I mean, I think Greg's, uh, you know, a, a really effective, thoughtful, intelligent, decent human being. You know, I'd, I for one would be very happy to see him come back into government. The other thing that's happened recently, although it seems as always, whenever we do these podcasts, we, there, there are things that happened a week ago, and it mm. feels like a lifetime. Six months, yeah, exactly. Um, that, I think the lifetime of a, of a recent prime minister, possibly. Um, <laughs> But the, um, the the Skidmore review, oh, yes. another mission, Mission Zero, mm. um, which is a great title. Yes, yes. Well, I, I think I, we discussed before that um, uh, in politics now you don't have plans, you have missions. Um, whether it's because we watch too many, you know, Hollywood movies or what, I don't know. But no, I thought the I thought Chris it isn't a, the problem that because we watch too many movies. Whenever I hear the word mission, the next word that comes into my head is impossible <laughs> well indeed although you know i mean you have to admire tom cruise both for his his physical athleticism his remarkable hair color and um <laughs> no i mean you know he's made that franchise extraordinary but you're distracting me from the, the, the main thing um tune into our other podcast where yes, we review we films, films books yeah, absolutely <laughs> um uh, no i th- i thought chris Kimmore did a really good job it's quite dynamic it is quite ambitious there are mm. things in there that make you go ooh. uh how are we going to do that? But that's fine because he's trying to point the direction. He's trying to say this should be the benchmark. Um, the one that leapt out at me was, and I think I've got this correct, the mandatory uh, to having a mandatory minimum EPC B rating for all non-domestic mm. buildings by 2030, and for all new buildings non-domestic by 2025. Now, if you stop and think about all the non-domestic buildings, most of us can think of at least three that haven't got a hope in hell of getting anywhere near EPC-C, let alone B, in seven years. Well, I think we're, we're recording this in, a, in our lovely little podcast suite mm, yes. on Bishopsgate, and I think even here you could throw yes. a rock and hit a couple. No, absolutely. Well, I wouldn't, yeah, you, you might, uh, it might actually fall down if you did with one or two of them. But, um, no, uh, and... And, uh, and for new buildings by 2025, I mean, those things are going to be in the planning system already. Yeah, that means all forms of architecture and design, all forms of planning have to change. Um, it means the whole building materials uh, supply industry has to rethink where it's going. Uh, now, some of that is happening, of course, already. Mm. Uh, and again, I think it's important that there is a clear mark, uh, whether it's feasible. I does say that there will obviously have to be certain exceptions. So one can sort of hear an enormous, you know, uh, escape clause being uh, set well, up there. There but already are for, for heritage buildings, aren't there? Yeah, and, you know, uh, I think you need to have a clear ambition. You need to have a reasonable run at it so people can feel that they can get there. Because if it's so 
you know, impossible, people immediately start to fight it. Yeah. But, you know, that that is a good ambition, I think, that he's done. He's also talked about um, having a land use strategy uh, which looks at uh, all the different aspects, not just the built environment, but also the, the energy environment and the landscape environment and what balance of uses and agriculture should be. So should some of the, 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 the worst um, agricultural grade land uh, actually be pushed over into energy production yeah. and so on and so forth, or indeed reforested. Now that, of course, the danger with that is that's a huge, that's a wonderful talking shop for uh, a large panel of people, if you're not careful. That needs to be controlled so that it's productive as a process, but not all-consuming. Um, so I, I thought the review was strong. I thought it was challenging. I think we will see responses to it in the March budget mm -hmm. and announcements around that, uh, particularly around the question of the boilers of England, um, because um, we have a huge challenge there of how we actually change the energy systems for 30 million front doors. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is just immense. And so far, the, domestically and commercially, it seems that the the measures have been fairly piecemeal, fairly small. That kind of nudge yeah. encouragement. Yes. I think it, it needs to be more than that, doesn't it? I because think it does, and it's difficult though because you, I think to be absolutely honest with people about the potential costs will scare the bejesus out of you know a very large number of people, and also because the way it will be reported, it will sound as though everyone's going to have to spend whatever the maximum number is, and some of the maximum numbers will be eye-watering. Um, also, I think you've got to have a realistic view here. There are some, a lot of social housing which is never going to get there. It's so historic. Now the question is, do we just, do we, we can't demolish it because that doesn't help either mm -hmm. with net zero. Do we leave it to sort of just gradually get emptier and become run down? Or do we say we need to take it as far as we realistically can, but actually roofs over people's heads are very, very important. And heaven knows we haven't got enough of them. Exactly. So I think there have to be some honest debates about that and some decisions taken. And they won't be, you know, the environmental lobby. Some some are sensible about this. Some are purists and are unrealistic about it. And I think what people just need is a clear framework. Yeah. Do you think that the things that, that Chris Kidmore has laid down in his Mission Zero, not just the call for action, but the targets saying legislation needs to be passed for this yes. now, yep. is there any likelihood that that's going to happen? The, the legislative agenda is already full. There's, yeah. let's say, 18 months until the next election. Yes, this is a, a national priority. This is a ticking time bomb. Mm -hmm. But it's probably not a priority for a government that's wanting quick fixes in a short amount of time. I mean... Is there a possibility that this actually just all gets kicked? I think no. I think I think I think some of it will be picked up and run with, um, and, and that'll start from the budget. Some of it will be regarded as being beyond their capability, and some of it will rely on whether there is a cross-party consensus that this government can start, and a future government, whether it's blue or red, can then continue it. I actually would say that there's quite a lot of consensus across the two parties for an awful lot of this. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I, th I think would be useful is if they look to form a joint um, commons committee of, and look at the stuff that the government should say, we can do these things immediately. These are all the things that need cross-party consensus. We'd like you, the committee, to go through these and see what we feel is viable. Because that actually, what that tends to do is it flushes out the arguments. It tends to make party politics... Uh, puts it to one side in those kinds of committee conversations, that'll come later, but mm. it advances it. It also starts giving it a bit of a momentum. 
Um, it's why you have draft bills going through standing uh, select committees, because um, very often they're good at this. And I think we're having uh, one of the select committee chairs coming in we are. soon, aren't yes, we? Yes, my yes. good friend, Time Betts, is coming. Stay tuned for that. Yes, that's going to be a good one. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a, a lovely um, a lovely idea of cross party cooperation, and um, I, th I think you, maybe you're looking <laughs> you back. Sound, on you sound slightly <laughs> sceptical of that. I think I don't know. I think maybe the rose tinted spectacles are yeah. coming on when thinking about your own time in a coalition. But um, well, is, I, I mean, to be fair, the, we, we, that we, was a coalition that had been formed. And of agreed on. Yeah, because the, on, public, on the public have basically said, we don't trust any of you to do it on your own. <laughs> but it can happen. So, for example... Well, um, do you think it can happen now? I mean, we've got, even though they are agreeing on so many things, yeah. on net zero agreement, wider climate change issue agreement, in fact, they're trying to outdo each other, on levelling up, we have uh, Lisa and Andy basically saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm the person who sh who's... The best taking at back control. Up. Exactly. It, taking back control. Yeah, everything. There seems to be so much agreement, mm. but there's also this political imperative to widen the gap between them as much as possible or show that it's widened. I think the two leaders are much more likely than their, any of their predecessors on both sides to be willing to go for it. Frankly, that's what a lot of the public want us to do. They're tired of us, you know, shouting and screaming at each other and throwing things. It, you know, they would really like people. It's where I think American politics is so exasperating many of the American mm. public, which is that Washington wasn't working and still isn't working because they just won't compromise. And, um, you know, the nature of anything where in a democracy requires your ability to respect others' views and, and to compromise where you can. Well, I think let's watch this space. Um, Indeed. <laughs> would, you, would you say you're optimistic? I think a lot of it can be delivered, the mm. Skidmore Review. I think um, I would hope that they can come to some sort of consensus on some of those issues. Um, but, yeah, I think I'm cautiously optimistic. Yeah, I'm going to go for that. Well, we will obviously check in on this very conversation <laughs> in a few months' time. I shall, of course, deny all knowledge. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Never heard of him. Uh, completely taken out of context. Uh, <laughs> It'd be really good. Uh, we're having a future um, conversation with Clive Betts, who chairs the uh, Select Committee that overlooks the, all the work um, in terms of things like housing, planning, local government finance, devolution. Uh, he's a very experienced uh, Select Committee chair. And we'll kind of go into what do they do? How does it work? Yeah. Uh, why does it matter from the property world's point of view? Um, and, uh, and maybe hopefully have uh, one or two of the uh, amusing behind the scenes uh, stories. And also an insight into how you can do these things beyond party politics, which yeah. I think is, is, is a fascinating thing absolutely. about how this committee's yes, work. Yes, absolutely. And he's a very good exemplar of that. A clear Labour man, absolutely, but is uh, very balanced and sensible in his role as chair. Great stuff. You can listen, obviously, to all of uh, Michael Heseltine. Um, if you've managed to find this, you'll probably be able to find that. And But until next time, um, that's goodbye from me. And goodbye from him. <laughs>